Please open your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. John 5. I'll be reading verses 18 through 29. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Last week we started what will be a two-part series in this text. Point number one, in an effort to move our hearts toward this idea of resting in what Christ has accomplished, but to help others rest in what Christ has accomplished for the sake of eternal life. Point number one was Jesus and the Father are equal in nature. This is a critical doctrine. They are equal in nature. You could say it this way, Jesus is God. But don't just speak about that with a platitudinal mindset saying, I know it's true. Know why you know it's true. Back and listen to that message from last week if you want evidence from Scripture. Verse 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You remember from Exodus 31, verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. This was for Israel. It's very clear. It's what he says. Verse 16, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The Old Testament Sabbath day was a sign of the Sabbath rest to come. It was required of Israel to rest on that day. Saturday in adherence to the Old Covenant commandment to do so. Hebrews 10.1, if you want a really concentrated understanding of the temporary essence of the observance of the Sabbath day, 
which wasn't the ultimate Sabbath. It wasn't even the real Sabbath. Saturday was never the actual Sabbath. It was always a foreshadowing. In Hebrews 10, verse 1, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Such a critical doctrinal understanding. It's very important you understand that the the Sabbath was to come. This was a foreshadowing of the Sabbath, Saturday. It means Sabbath. It means rest. Saturday was a day for giving homage to the coming Sabbath. Jesus, in his word, is the reality to which that shadow pointed. We see this in Hebrews 4, beginning with verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We did a study Wednesday night, Saturday morning with the guys on sexual purity. Really what we did was a study in personal purity. The proverb asks the question, who can bring fire into his bosom? and not be burned. See, this is the power of the word of God to deal specifically with the internal contents of the heart. So the person who doesn't want his sin addressed will cover those things over. He will do everything he can to twist and reject the word of God, even though it's crystal clear. The person who dabbles with, plays with sexual temptation will fall. And he's fooling himself and he's attempting to fool everyone else when he tries to persuade others to believe that he hasn't done that. But that's a work that must start in the heart. That's what the word of God does. That's where the eternal rest that we have ultimately in Jesus Christ in heaven is displayed in the moment that we're being impacted, really powerfully changed by the word of God. And the person who attempts to cover over the word of God is rejecting the rest that we have in the person of Christ through the word of God, in the word of God, by the power of the word of God. Hebrews 4.9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What does the Pharisee do? He strives hard to persuade everyone to believe that his life is something that it's not. Therefore, when his life is addressed, he not only runs from that difficult ordeal, what he will do then is fabricate lies about the person who's bringing those things to the attention of that person. Creates confusion. Works nearly every time. Your rest in Christ is found not in your works, not in what you do, not in what you've done, but in Christ and what he has accomplished. How is that manifest? It's manifest by sitting under sound teaching, by being subject to sound biblical counsel, by longing for sound correction 
from those who genuinely walk in the light, those who genuinely love the Lord. Our text in John goes on to say, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this is where we get that point. Jesus and the father are equal in nature. But you see that the matter of the Sabbath, what it was and what it wasn't, is critical to understanding this. That Jesus would be God incarnate and would serve as the ultimate Sabbath, but himself would break the false Sabbath of the false believers the Jews of Jesus' day. He would break their false Sabbath, but we must remember that he has told us he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And when he came, he fulfilled the purpose of the temporary expression of honoring the Sabbath on Saturday. That was no longer important. In fact, it was repealed in Colossians 2. Colossians 1, verse 19 tells us, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of deity was pleased to be incarnate, to be robed in flesh. Paul in Philippians 2.6 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, point two last week was that Jesus and the Father are united in works. Verse 19 says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. You remember back in verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working on the Sabbath. Not the real Sabbath. The temporary Sabbath had served its purpose. The Father rested from his work of creation. He didn't rest from any other work. He ceased the work of creation after the sixth day. The seventh day, God's number of completion throughout the scripture is seven. And on that seventh day, he said it is completed. It's good. He looked at all he had done and said it's good. So he established a pattern for mankind to rest so as to look forward to the ultimate rest, and it was a temporary call. Where do you and I find our rest? Well, we look forward to eternal rest, just as the Old Testament saint did. They were reminded in that weekly Sabbath event. By the way, that was never a day of worship. Saturday never became Sunday. We gather for the purpose of celebrating the resurrection. Nothing to do with the Sabbath at all. It's a completely different issue. We gather to worship. We gather to celebrate the resurrection, but the Old Testament Jew looked forward to the Sabbath rest with that symbolic expression. It was a dispensation for that time, same as the sacrificial system. It was a dispensation for a time we no longer engage in the sacrificial system. Why? Because the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God came and he was sacrificed. So the purpose of that dispensation was fulfilled in its time. So what do we look at now? in an effort to be reminded of the ultimate eternal Sabbath rest we have in the person of Christ. We look at Christ in his word, Hebrews 4.12. That's why it comes on the heels of an understanding of the fact that this was but a shadow of things to come, but that the ultimate Sabbath is Christ himself. How do we enjoy Christ today? We enjoy Christ in his word, by honoring his word, by obeying his word, by being committed to the one another's. Again, in our study Wednesday night and Saturday morning, we've spent time in 1 John. And what 1 John 
showed us is that fellowship with the Father and the Son never takes place without fellowship with people. Fellowship with God the Father is fellowship with people. They don't take place apart from one another. There might be some moments, certainly in your quiet time, where you're fellowshipping with the Father and with the Son, and there's nobody else there. But that's a momentary reality. If you're going to be obedient to Jesus Christ, you're going to be obedient to those commands to be engaged in the 60 plus one another's in the Bible, which means being engaged faithfully, sacrificially, reliably in the body of Christ. That's fellowship with the body and it's fellowship with the Father and the Son. These works that the Father and the Son have done together where Jesus says that the Father will show him more works that will make you marvel, those are works that he does in the human heart. The work that he does when he saves someone that you, if you were honest, would say, you know, I thought that was probably a person who couldn't be saved, which is just an expression of your self-righteousness, right? You know, you feel as though when God saved you, it wasn't much of a work because, you know, you would never do the things that other people do. But when God saves someone who's clearly committed to debauchery far worse than what you think you were, it seems like a far greater work. The fact is, when he saves anyone, it's a miraculous changing of someone's life, really someone's dead state unto a living state. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Point three, and I gave it to you last week, but we didn't spend much time on it. Point three, Jesus and the Father are sovereign over eternal life and judgment. Verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. A well-known rabbi scholar, simply known by Rabbi Yohanan, asserts that Israel understood that God alone was able to perform these three works. He had entrusted much to his subjects, his representatives. They could perform all other tasks on his behalf, but these three works were only done by God. Only God could perform them. These three works are rain. Deuteronomy 28.12 says, The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. It's a blessing. Jesus tells us that God, in his grace, we, we refer to this as common grace, he's caused it to rain upon the just and the unjust. Only God can bring the rain. So that was the first expression of God's exclusive ability. The second was control of the womb. Genesis 30:22 says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Only God can do that. Man can't do that. The third was the resurrection of the dead. Ezekiel 37, 13 says, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Only God could make life out of death. Only he could bring the dead to life. Now, Elijah was an exception, having resurrected the dead. But John says here, the son gives life to whom he will. 
Well, his will was to do the will of the Father. He, too, was and is sovereign over and in the power of resurrection. Elijah was not. Elijah could only resurrect by way of being a representative of God whom God had determined to resurrect. Jesus, the Son of God, can resurrect whom he wills. Elijah was this exception, having resurrected some from the dead, but not by his own will. The Son gives life to whom he will. While his will was to do the will of the Father, he too was and is sovereign over the power of resurrection. We've established that while he temporarily divested himself of his deified prerogatives, his divine abilities, he did not stop being God. He did not stop being sovereign, and in his and the Father's perfect will, he took up his deified powers as he deemed best, as they together deemed best in the appropriate timing. He gives life according to his own will because his will is from the Father. It is the Father's will in him. And he does so as an expression of his uninterrupted sovereignty. But he is not only sovereign over eternal life, over resurrection. He is also sovereign over judgment. Verse 22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So just as he is sovereign over eternal life, he is sovereign over judgment. It is the Father's will for the Son to exercise that judgment. How can this be? Is God the Father not judge at his core? Is he not the eternal judge? Back in the Old Testament, Genesis 18, 25, far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked Far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. God is referred to as judge, and being judge, he always judges. It's an expression of his very character. God then in that text, Genesis 18, we see goes on to exercise judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, raining down wrath on both cities in their entirety. But in his judgment, chooses to spare Lot and his daughters. Will he not judge in the future? The Son of God will judge in the future. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the judgment of the Son of God to whom judgment has been given by the Father. And are we not to trust God the Father in his judgment? Now, the text could seem perplexing to us. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. Are we not to trust him in his judgment according to 1 Peter 2, verse 20? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now the contrast here is the pure life of Jesus Christ with yours and mine in that we have sinned, we have misrepresented righteousness, we have been unrighteous. But Jesus, on the other hand, who has set an example for us in his perfect righteousness, it is said of him, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23 in 1 Peter 2 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Is it not the Father's place to judge? Is he not judge? Well, in verse 21 in our text, Jesus explains where he and the Father are doing the same work. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. But here he declares that the Father has given the work of judgment exclusively to him. So while God the Father exercised this judgment all throughout what we understand to be the Old Testament era, in his perfect timing and in his sovereignty and in agreement with the Son, he determined to give all judgment to his Son. The fullness of this truth is expressed in Matthew 25. And as I mentioned earlier, with regard to the nearly pervasive influence of false teachers, those who profess to know Christ can continue in their sin dumb down their conscience, refuse to be subject to the teaching of and the correction by the word of God. But the day is coming where all of that will be revealed for exactly what it is. Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So just when someone might be reading this and bolstering his or her self-esteem, thinking, well, I do all those things, Jesus reveals the fact that it's not just about doing works. It's about doing works for those who can't give anything in return. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that crystal clear? Those who are constantly doing works for those from whom they can get something are revealing so much about the condition of their hearts. 
Our work ought to be for those. In fact, our work is for those who can give nothing in return. If, in fact, we are in Christ, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment the righteous into eternal life all the way on that path when Jesus himself the executioner of the unregenerate Pharisee the person committed to and dependent upon his works will be screaming, what about what I did? What about all that I did? Which is exactly what that person is saying today. Why does the father give this judgment to his son? Verse 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. You see, this is a real spiritual conundrum for the Pharisees, for the Jews, who, in a sense, wanted to honor God. Romans 10, uh, verses 1 through 4, tell us plainly that they had a zeal for God, but without knowledge. So there was some interest in doing that which was right, but it was mitigated. It was diminished by enough desire to do what was actually wrong. Why? For the sake of appearing to be someone they were not. So the call was for them, not just them, but for everyone, to honor the Son. And they should have honored the Son because judgment is given to the Son. Why is judgment given to the Son? So that all would honor him just as they honor the Father. But we have to ask this question. How does one escape this judgment? Let me be clear about how one does not escape judgment. I've already been clear, but I want to say it again. It's not by what you do. It's not that you would be able to look back on your spiritual resume and say, taught Sunday school, you know, sang in the music ministry, served on the security team or, or whatever. Now listen, we must never ever belittle the good works of faithful believers. We were predestined for those good works, but the inclination of the false believer, the unbelieving legalist, is to rest on those works and to start drawing them up and focusing on them in the moment when one's spiritual condition is challenged. What we ought to be doing is saying, praise God, he predestined me for those good works which I enjoy. Do you love serving the body of Christ? Do you love sacrificing, doing that which you know is eternal? You struggle when you're ill because you think, wow, I wish I could do more. But you know that the body's compensating for you because there are faithful believers who will take your place temporarily or maybe permanently as you go on to another ministry. God in his design has blessed us with that 
harmony and diversity all at the same time that we work in unity toward the goal of God's glory, the edification of the saints, and the effective winning of souls. But those who did not hear his words were under his judgment. We must ask the question, how does one escape this judgment? And we must not be satisfied with a platitude. We must not be satisfied with a catchphrase. Just, you know, say these words. There's so much talk about Billy Graham. You know, people will just say, wow, what an amazing life. And then others have criticized him significantly for the lack of theology in his messages. I'm not here to talk to you about his life or his ministry much or anything like that at all. You can do your own investigation of that and come to your own conclusions. But be it known that calling people to pray a prayer is not evangelism. There's so much for which we can thank the Lord for the things that God spared Billy Graham from that led to him never being a black eye on the church with regard to things that he didn't do. But Billy Graham was not a representation of the church. Very little involvement in any church. What did he do? He spread a message. Some people will tell you it was that message that they heard and it was in that moment that they came to know Christ. Praise God for that. But the question you and I must be asking is, what does Scripture say about how a person escapes judgment? That's what we need to know. But before we do, let's talk about why they don't. Let's talk about why people don't escape judgment. And it's not for not praying a prayer. It's not for not walking an aisle to come from everywhere in the stadium down to the podium. It's not for not having done that. It's not in the Bible. because they don't have ears to hear and they think they do they think they do they sit with smug righteousness thinking they can dip their toe into the water of the church a couple times a month they think that their theology is right and yet they don't even have ears to hear Verse 24 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And friends, multitudes of people think that they have eternal life when it has nothing to do with actually hearing and believing and doing the word of God. Massive numbers of people are persuaded to think they are in Christ when they are not. Matthew eleven fifteen. he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to the imagery that Jesus goes on with here. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is it like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates? We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What's the point? The point is we did everything we could in an illustrative, colorful way. For you to hear the truth, and yet you rejected it. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. 
The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by their deeds. And as you know, Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, they hated you because they hated me. So it's not like the person who hates Jesus says he hates Jesus. He claims to love Jesus, but who does he hate? Those who, in fact, actually represent him. Committed to a righteous life. Committed to the works that actually result in salvation. God in his sovereign decree determining that he would predestine those for good works, that by those good works, people would hear the gospel. They would hear the proclamation of God's word. And by hearing, they would come to know him. A willingness to profess the whole counsel of God and to call people not to some decision, but to call people to righteous living, dependent living, restful living. To obey the commands of God rather than to reject them. Deuteronomy 9 verse 2 says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came into this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon and Og, the king of Bashan came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. You get it? The reality is that there are those who have not been given ears to hear. And whose fault is it? It's theirs. It's theirs. Because they are unwilling to subject themselves, to submit themselves to the whole counsel of God. They want to conveniently embrace some of it, that which would make them appear to be righteous. And yet, when the reality of their commitment to ungodliness, to disobedience, begins to be exposed, they do everything to cover it over. And the words of Moses are, obey. Mark 4, 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Stop hiding your sin. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use. It will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He's calling people to acknowledge that if they do not have ears to hear, it is because they reject the simplest commands of the Word of God, not utilizing what they have been given ultimately for God's glory. 
Luke 8, verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock as it grew up. It withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. With all our devotion to the clear teaching of the sovereignty of God from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, none of that dismisses the reality that the person who does not have ears to hear doesn't have ears to hear because he plugs them himself. He chooses to think that somehow he can escape the sovereign perfection of the Lord God to know all things and hide his sin. And so what happens? Practically speaking, the way this is manifest is that he then embraces some of the word of God and he focuses on that. And when someone points out the fact that he's rejecting some of the word of God, he wants to cover that over and say, well, what about this? And this is why he has not ears to hear. Romans 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And that's, that's God's sovereignty. You think, where is he going with this? This sounds like God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty never dismisses man's responsibility. Never. Never. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened for that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Without that last little phrase, you might think, well, it's all God's doing. No, no, no. The point is that they bent their backs. And in God's sovereignty, while they bend their backs, ultimately, because of their back bending, they bring that non-hearing condition upon themselves. We should say that they maintain that non-hearing condition themselves, and they're guilty. Verse 25 in our text, John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Why is there disunity in the body of Christ? Well, Jesus says it's because there are tares among the wheat. That's not always the case. Believers can have discord. We're yet plagued by what the Bible calls the flesh, have a new nature. So what do we do with that? Do we simply say like Paul does in Romans 7, why do I do what I don't want to do? Why do I not do what I want to do? No, because there's no exclamation point there. Paul goes on to say, thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ, who will free me from this body of death. Wow, new nature, body of death? The reality is you carry around a corpse until you go to heaven. You'll leave that corpse. 
And God will give you that corpse back in a restored state, glorified state. You'll have a bodily resurrection one day. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more disunity. So in the meantime, what are we to do? Romans 7, back to Romans 7, Paul says, so then. That's when you and I should really pay attention. So then. Because he's talking about a pretty significant dilemma in his life as a 20-year veteran Christian. Pretty mature. So then, on the one hand, I with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, I'm serving the law of sin with my flesh. It's a matter of sanctification. It's a matter of mortifying the flesh. It's a matter of obeying God's word and doing that with a collective group of people together, working together to honor Christ, to be known by our love for one another, that we would have an impact on the community and on the world. Verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. This is really verse 27, just a repetition of what he's already said. But verse 26 seems a little odd at first, doesn't it? He has life in himself. What is that? It's the ability to give eternal life. So, well, he's God. Didn't he already have that? He was a baby. Did Jesus, as a baby, have the ability to grant eternal life? Let me stir your life up for a moment. The answer is no. He was a baby. He, in his infant condition, divested himself of his deified prerogatives for a time. That's the whole point of the incarnation. When he took on flesh in the form of a human baby, while yet being God, he temporarily, willfully limited those abilities. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. You see how the incarnation is critical to the work of salvation? Our confession. It's not our confessing it. It's what we are confessing. It is the fact that he became a man that he took on flesh. Verse 15 in Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He became weak. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Like we're told repeatedly in 1 Peter, he's our example. So what do we do? Place ourselves in situations where we'll be tempted to sin? No, that's to reject Jesus Christ, but to avoid temptation. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. You see that? Jesus is acting as a human because he is. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. You see that? His reverence as a man. Don't create an admixture of the deity and the humanity of Christ such that the deity spills over into his humanity. It doesn't. It doesn't. While he is yet God, he is very man of very man. And he is man in every way that any man is man except without sin. This is amazing, isn't it? This is how he can be your example and mine. 
This is how you and I can be faithful because he was faithful. Hebrews 5 verse 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Wow. Do you forget this theology? I confess I do. I forget that he suffered and therefore grew in his obedience as a young man. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See that qualification there at the end? To all who obey him. And you say, well, no, I just rest in what Jesus did. Not if you're not obeying him, you're not. You're pretending. Luke 2, 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son... Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. You see, this is the orthopraxy of the incarnation. It wasn't simply that God somehow suffered as a man. It was that God actually took on flesh and lived as a real man. And in so doing showed his mercy to mankind. Verse 28 in John 5 goes on to say, do not marvel at this, do not marvel at him having been granted the ability to exercise judgment. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And see, some might use this, and Roman Catholics do use this to say, see, there you go. Your salvation is by faith plus works. What's, what is being spoken of here is the reality that those who are actually in Christ, those who will actually receive eternal life, are actually doing works that are actually righteous, not just pretending that they're righteous. Who's the judge of that? Jesus is. Man can exercise some judgment with that regard and should, but ultimately the person who's really good at fooling everyone can't fool God. But here we're told not to marvel at his ability, his sovereignty in exercising judgment, that he, while 
he was yet the sovereign God, was given the ability in the incarnation by the Father to exercise judgment, something that he divested himself of, but was given back as a man by God the Father. We're told here, don't marvel at that. Don't marvel so much at his sovereignty in judgment. It's right for the perfect, sinless judge to judge. But marvel at his willingness to grant mercy. In Acts 17.22, we read, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move, move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So while Jesus has been granted the privilege and responsibility of judgment, he also was raised from the dead so that all who would repent today and trust in his life-giving resurrection would in fact know eternal life. While he is judge and executioner, he is also God and Savior. How then does one escape this judgment over which Jesus, the Son of God, is sovereign? When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we by no means dismiss the responsibility of man. This view is a faulty construct, falsely applied by those who do not believe in the sovereignty of God against those who do. It is bearing false witness so as to discredit not only the testimony of those who trust in the sovereign Savior, it is to insult and offend the Savior, making him non-sovereign. We must proclaim the message of Jesus who grants eternal life to all those who will turn from their sin and press into him, resting in him as the one who resurrects the dead in his sovereign mercy. 
The problem is that the unregenerate mind who cannot hear and does not see cannot and will not allow for things he does not understand. He cannot imagine or believe that two truths which are above him can both be true. So, when he hears the same person declaring both truths, he accuses this person of contradicting himself. This is the predicament of the arrogant, unregenerate mind, those without ears to hear. Most unfortunate is that often because the rejecter of God's sovereignty and his grace speaks as if he understands the simpler man-made issues of life, perhaps he can explain how a car engine works or a computer program, or he can conjure up some relatively smart-sounding conjecture regarding how the earth stays on its axis, and maybe he can even explain some relatively complex matters related to physics or governmental law or even the tax code. He will potentially persuade others to believe that he does understand some spiritual things because he has some ability to explain secular things. Perhaps he does. But while he rejects this plainly stated but divine truth, he shows that he does not have the mind of Christ. He cannot and does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. And judgment is coming. How does one escape this judgment? Acts 17.32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. For the person who says, I don't get it, he, he needs to say, I, I want to keep listening because judgment's coming. But in John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The person who does not want to walk in the light, doesn't walk in the light, refuses to walk in the light, walks in darkness. He wants to live behind closed locked doors where people can't see what's going on. He wants to exercise his sovereignty. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see the repeated contrast between the person who actually has eternal life? He submits himself to the Word of God. I mean, he really submits himself to the Word of God. And the person who doesn't does not have eternal life. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. I mentioned to you last week, I reminded you of the life of the Samaritan woman, a woman who, who had a catalog of adultery. 
five marriages, currently living with a man who's not her husband. Jesus draws attention to that because that is an expression of her rejection of that which leads to eternal life. And yet he shows mercy to her, but that mercy begins by confronting her with her sin, a willingness to tell the truth that hurts. And what happens? What happens is that she becomes a soul winner. <laughs> she's, she's made aware of the distinction between a righteous life and an unrighteous life. And she rests in what he was telling her rather than her own ability to change her life. So she goes into town, Sychar. Samaritans want to hear what she has to say. And then at one point they tell her, you know, our, our hope is no longer in what you've said. We, we're converted. We, we want to be with Jesus. So they persuade him to stay with them for two days, and he teaches them for two days. It's not an insult to her. It's really an affirmation of her faithfulness that what ultimately or initially led to their salvation was her testimony of the true Christ. And then what ultimately they rested in was his testimony, and they wanted to be with him. They wanted to walk in the light. If you've seen that Jesus is the God-man, equal in nature with the Father, united in works with the Father, sovereign over eternal life and judgment with the Father, if you're resting in the truth that he grants eternal life to all those who will repent of their sins, forsake their sins, come unto him, bringing nothing to the table but acknowledging everything, that prevents them from having eternal life. If that's you, God has given you eternal life. If you acknowledge your sin before him with repentance, confessing and forsaking of it, you will see that he has mercifully in his sovereignty granted you eternal life and escape from the judgment. But if you've been granted eternal life, others will believe because of your testimony. I'm thinking of a gal. I don't think any of you know her. She's not part of our church. This woman was committed to teaching Sunday school for several decades. By the time I met her, at least five. And just to be candid, she was one of the meanest people I'd ever met. Let's just cut to the chase and say that's not a Christian. That's not a Christian. A mean-spirited, malicious, gossip-saturated, dishonest person. What did she rest in? She rested in her works, like a lot of false converts do. And, and trust me when I tell you, nobody but nobody was interested in Jesus Christ as a result of knowing her. Now, that's an extreme example, but you and I have got to reckon with this. We've got to ask the question, are we legitimately, I'm not talking about, you know, you're at the bar or whatever and you talk about God every now and then. Are people legitimately embracing the kind of lifestyle that reflects the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a result of your life? 
Let's finish up with this. Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul speaks pastorally. He's a pastor. Paul speaks the truth about the Thessalonians. He says the hard things when necessary. But he says about them what is true. He says in verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. He speaks on behalf of Timothy and Silas, his ministry co-defenders. As is right... Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. You know, I can say that about you. You know, I, I read Paul's letters and sometimes I think, wow, I'm living, I'm living the joy that Paul the Apostle experienced as a pastor. Not because I'm comparable to Paul the Apostle. I by no means mean that, but because of you, and you're comparable to the Thessalonians. Verse 4, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Does that seem odd? He speaks of their faithfulness, and then he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you consider Jesus and the Father's sovereignty over eternal life and judge it, my hope is that you would long to be worthy of the gospel, as Paul declared to be true of the Thessalonians, worthy of the kingdom of God, worthy of God's calling on your life. I would encourage you to force yourself out of the imprisoning mindset that the best use of your life is the pursuit of a better quality of life. Reject the fleeting pleasure of pursuing your earthly dreams and embrace the eternal satisfaction of seeing precious souls pass from death unto life and God will grant you ultimate fulfillment in heaven but even now on this earth that you would experience the satisfaction of knowing that your life is lived in such a way that people will know your love one for another. Be a faithful and effective messenger of the eternal Son of God who is judge and Savior, that we know the joy of seeing those who sit under his wrath will enjoy the rest gained by his mercy for his glory. Let's pray.
Father, we long to rest in what Christ accomplished, that the hard work of our lives would be an expression of the fullness of that accomplishment. Lord, we ask for your glory to be on display even now as we sing, that we would increasingly know the power of the resurrection, not only to save the lost, but to sanctify that lost person who has now been given ears to hear. May we trust in Jesus Christ, who is not only the judge, but is the Savior. It's in his name we pray.